I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is Spit, an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. This is the podcast that explores how DNA is changing our lives and the world around us. On today's episode, we're exploring the importance prevention plays in our health and also in our well-being. We know from previous episodes that our genetics and our environment are both important factors to our health. Due to family history, there are some things we're at a higher risk for versus the general population. But to a large extent, we're still in control, and there are proactive steps we can take to manage our risk. Today, I'm sitting here with a phenomenal group of women, each advocating in their own way for more people to take a more proactive approach to their health. Rita Wilson, actor, musician, activist, and breast cancer survivor. I'm always amazed by the community of women who are compelled to pay it forward and say, this is what my experience was, this is how I dealt with it, this is what to expect, make sure you do X, Y, and Z, so that you're getting a lot of information. Dr. Laura Esserman, professor of surgery and radiology at the University of California, San Francisco, and director of the UCSF Breast Care Clinic. You know, we don't treat breast cancer as, as if it's one disease, so we shouldn't screen and prevent for it as, as if people were all at risk for the same cancer and all had the same risk. And Katie Thede, CEO of Bright Pink. We see increase in consumer or patient knowledge about their genetics. We have a greater need, I believe, for healthcare providers to be able to counsel and interpret that information. And later joining us is breast cancer previvor and author of Braving BRCA blog, Sarah Altschul. It was hard for me to understand the concept of that I could be strong and scared at the same time. And that was like a big realization. Like, I can be both. I'm so scared to have the surgery. I was terrified. But that didn't mean I wasn't strong. Now, I want to start off by grounding us in a few facts. Uh, According to breastcancer.org, about one in eight U.S. women will develop invasive breast cancer over the course of her lifetime. The good news is we're seeing a decrease in women losing their lives to this disease as a result of treatment advances, earlier detection through screening, and increased awareness. Still, one in eight is high, and the risk nearly doubles if she has a first-degree relative, a mother, a sister, a daughter, who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. What most women don't know about are the BRCA genes and the tremendous risk variants in these genes that they can present. Women with a variant in a BRCA gene can see as high as an 85% chance of developing breast cancer and a 46% chance of developing ovarian cancer. Angelina Jolie famously documented her double mastectomy in the New York Times after testing positive for a BRCA variant. This episode is all about sharing as much knowledge as possible to get listeners educated and inspired to take action. So I want to start with the basics, some understandings of the science behind what's happening with our bodies. Dr. Laura Esserman, what role do our genetics play in cancer, and in particular in breast cancer? We've learned a lot more about the risk factors for developing breast cancer. And I'll start with the genetics, then I'm going to talk about some other things that also impact risk, some of which are also genetic, Okay. and then some things that your exposures and things that you can do that make a difference. Lay it out for us. So the first thing is that there is a very small number of people who actually have a mutation, but that means like an error, and one of the genes, 
like BRCA1, BRCA2, CDH1. There are actually nine of these genes that actually, if you've got an error in this gene, it leads to a much higher chance of getting breast cancer. And not all of them are associated with the high risk of ovarian cancer. And what we say is knowledge of this is really important. Knowledge is power. I mean, it gives you the options to think about how to screen, whether you want to do prophylactic surgery. These errors in the genes lead to different kinds of cancer. I think one of the very important things that people need to understand is that breast cancer is not one disease. It actually is a number of different diseases, and there are different types of breast cancer. Some are very fast-growing and aggressive, and some are pretty slow-growing and can be manipulated or uh, by hormonal exposures and maybe even prevented that way. So it turns out that it's not as simple as people thought. So there's not one cancer. It is not one and cancer. And there's not one cancer gene. That's right. And we're right. going to get to this later, but you know we don't treat breast cancer as, as if it's one disease, so we shouldn't screen and prevent for it as, as if okay. people were all at risk for the same cancer and all had the same risk, because none of that could possibly make sense. So it's time to bring the idea of personalized medicine to screening and prevention. So another thing is that what's more common is everyone, and it's really important, a variant in a gene... Uh, and one of these major genes isn't something that we think is associated with risk. But variations in certain genes by themselves don't mean very much. But together, they can actually confer risk. This is what we call polygenic risk. And so these are, you know, if you spit into a cup, you can not only do a deep dive into some of these genes, but you can also look at these small differences in genes. These are the so-called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. But together, we call it polygenic risk. So one of the things, there's been a ton of research in breast cancer. And first, it was seven of them. Then it was 36. Then it was 72, 96. Now it's over 200 of these that we think together um, actually can confer more risk. And what we're finding actually is that there's a smaller group of people who have more risk and then a larger group of people that it actually downgrades their risk. Mm. So this becomes one of the tools to help us understand who needs, you know, hopefully in the future, who needs to be screened. So on top of that, breast density is another significant marker of risk. And what is breast density? So your breast is made up of glands and fat and with this fibroglandular tissue and collagen, and how dense that is or how tightly packed it is, is one of the things that we know confers risk. The more dense, the more risk. And also makes some of the screening not as effective as we would like it to be. But our understanding of how that confers risk is is changing, and it's giving us opportunities to think about how to change that. Some of these factors that you have are actually changeable. You can't change who your parents are. You can't change what genes you inherited. some of our wishes. Correct. But you can, there are things that you can do to change your risk. And there are things that can change your breast density. And there are certain things like, I'm sad to say, not drinking too much alcohol is uh, important. I don't think there's Really turns good out that's data. Generally healthier. That turns out. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It turns out all the things that are good for you yeah. are also good for breast cancer. Eating more of a plant-based diet, having more exercise, yeah. lower in alcohol, these things lead to a lower risk for breast cancer. Okay. When you are postmenopausal, after you've had menopause, not taking combined hormone replacement also definitely reduces your risk. That that's the big women's health initiative showed us that that's one of the things that really conferred a lot of risk. So 
weight is also something that, especially when you're postmenopausal, does you know confer. So there's a lot of pieces risk. to this puzzle. And there are it's, a lot of pieces, and there's it's yeah. more complicated. And there's lots of opportunities to start to think about. Okay, what are other things we can do? Right. You know, how, you know what you eat, and you know what's in your microbiome, what's in the the all the bacteria that lie in your gut. Maybe that's how you metabolize food. This is sort of one of this is sort of the cutting edge of how to understand maybe what the real link is between diet and breast cancer so risk. I, I want to come back to that edge in terms of some of these more preventive steps, and also you hinted at how we can be more nuanced in our study in terms of applying screenings. So that's come, right. We're we'll come, come back, back to, that. to that as well. So, Rita, I want to follow up with you because you're a survivor and you didn't have the BRCA variant present, correct? Correct. How did you discover your breast cancer? And can you can you take us through uh, your resolution of this? I assume that was a lot. Um, I had a, a benign fibroid adenoma when I was 27 years old, and it just got me alert to having a lump in your breast. And so I started getting regular mammograms when I was 40. And um, somewhere along the line, um, I was found to have a condition called lobular carcinoma in situ, LCIS. And my doctor explained to me that that wasn't really anything that was cancerous, but it was sort of like put me at increased risk for possibly having cancer. So we just, his recommendation was to do my yearly mammograms and also a yearly um, breast MRI. So every six months it was one test or the other. So I was doing that regularly and I, on one of my MRIs, um, it lit up. And so my doctor said, well, let's see, go in there and see what's happening. And we did a needle-guided breast MRI for um, a biopsy, and that came back as being what is called pleomorphic lobular carcinoma in situ, PLCIS. Whoa! So what that is, is if LCIS is like a round circle, Uh and, and it's containable, PLCIS is like a paint splatter. You just don't know where those margins are, if there's anything to be there. But his advice, right? Very helpful with all the so right. So he um, suggested that I do a lumpectomy, and we did a lumpectomy, removing whatever that tissue was. And he said, um, "Well, it's we see PLCIS, but there's really very little known about that and the connection to breast cancer, except for that." They often see PLCIS in conjunction with ductal carcinoma in C2, DCIS. So I had a question, and the question was, are there margins? And did you get everything? Because if you think you got everything, but you don't really know, he said, that is a good question. And we went back in and did a second lumpectomy. And the tissue still came back as PLCIS, and they said that they did not find cancer. Okay. I was very, I don't know, I really have to say, and I would say this to all women, trust your gut on things. You don't know why. But a girlfriend of mine who was a two-time breast cancer survivor, and she's doing really well, um, she said, 
you should get a second opinion on your pathology. And I had never heard that before. I've always heard about getting a second opinion from your doctor, but never a second opinion on your pathology. Just break down what is the distinction? Well, a doctor saying, here are my results. I have PLCIS. um, And what do you think I should be doing? And doctors giving you a second opinion on that. But my girlfriend said you should get a second opinion on your pathology, which is actually the tissue that's been removed in those lumpectomies. So I went to see a doctor in New York and um, where I was working, and she said the same thing. Why are you getting all these lumpectomies? You should get a uh, second opinion on your pathology, which is what I did. And we went with Dr. Ira Blyweiss, who is very knowledgeable and one of the uh, best breast cancer pathologists, and it came back positive for breast cancer. Then I got a second opinion on that from Sloan Kettering, and it was positive for breast cancer. Wow. So it's another, it's a different type of doctor yeah. who actually is skilled at looking at the, the tissues the, and yeah. reading, the, reading, the the, reading the results. Yeah. Right, exactly. And Dr. Esserman, you might be able to um, go into more detail about this, but because PLCIS is sometimes most likely found in the other breast as well and would probably have meant that... Um, because I did have cancer, that that would develop into cancer in the other breast. Uh, and radiation really wasn't an option for me. Uh, I went with bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction. But fortunately, I did not have to do chemo. And um, I didn't have to take tamoxifen because it was very, very early stage. Or I, I say tamoxifen, but any of those um, hormone inhibitors. Blockers. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, and I'm just glad you're here. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you, you. you. You seem healthier and more vibrant and more alive than ever, and I'm well, glad you thank trusted you. your gut. Well, thank you. One yeah. of the things, though, that Dr. Esserman brought up, and it's absolutely true, which is a real bummer, because when you get breast cancer, the one thing you, you'd like to say to yourself is, oh, thank God, give me my alcohol. I'll just drink my way through it. <laughs> it's a real bummer when you're told that, yes, you have breast cancer. No, you can't drink. Limit your alcohol to three to five glasses of alcohol per week, which is a five ounce glass of wine <laughs> or a one and a half ounce glass of hard liquor. Not so much fun. Sounds like you had well, detailed study on that. But, but, but people, but you know, put soda water in and mix it with yeah. fun stretch drinks it and stretch make it, it stretch out. it out. And put it in a fun glass. There's, right. there's other ways to you know. yes. feel a little buzz. Yes, uh, Katie, I, I want to bring you in from the bright pink perspective and your own perspective. Hearing this mm-hmm. and knowing some of the mission of Bright Pink, how has this shaped your attitude and your actions toward a proactive approach? on health, and particularly breast health. Well, thank you. First of all, Rita, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And Dr. Esselman, I am such a fan. I think the work you're doing is incredible. So it's really a huge pleasure to be here. Um, Bright Pink is a national nonprofit organization. Our mission is to help save lives from breast and ovarian cancer by empowering women to know their risk and then driving women who are at elevated risk to take risk-reducing action in partnership with a healthcare provider. And so, again, the you know comments that Dr. Esselman was making just really ring true for our organization, for the you know work that we do to try to empower women. And since Bright Pink's founding, the organization for the past 11 years has really been working to shift the national conversation from one of awareness and treatment to one of action and prevention. So um, Bright Pink, you know, really empowers women to practice prevention, 
but we don't believe in a one-size-fits-all approach. We know that all women are at some risk for breast and ovarian cancer just by being women, but some women are at greater risk than others. And so we've developed this amazing risk assessment tool. It's called assessyourrisk.org. It's um, the only consumer-facing tool in the market that takes a comprehensive look at your lifestyle, risk factors, your personal health history, your family health history, and then delivers directly to your inbox a risk management plan so that you can say, okay, based on me, (laughs) I know exactly what to do to manage my risk, hopefully in partnership with a healthcare provider. Um, So I think, you know, the comments that both of these women have made today just make me feel even more excited about distributing this tool to as many women as possible and really empowering women with the information they need to take a personalized approach to their prevention. I think that's the key here. Um, We're really proud of the fact that our risk assessment tool has reached over a million women already, over 400,000 women in 2018, but we have a whole lot more work to do. And, you know, I think as an era of shared decision making amongst patients and providers becomes more and more present. And as, um, you know, health innovation really accelerates the need for consumer-driven healthcare decision-making, we have a tremendous opportunity here to really move the needle. So there's such consistency about precision, personalization, and I feel like I'm in a world of maximum breast cancer awareness. There are campaigns, there are ribbons, there are months, there are news media do activities. And I know amongst my friends and, and, and loved ones, yeah. there is also heightened fear. And, and so okay, awareness is through the roof. What are those actions and what do we do? And I want to bring it back to you, doctor, uh, because you're doing a study. You're bringing some nuanced approach to try to assess that varied risk that Katie was just talking about. Can you tell us more about that? I can. And Katie, I think, you know, you'll particularly love what we're doing in the wisdom study. And, you know, one of the things that I have found very frustrating is that people argue so much about screening. But what we're arguing about is data that's 30 and 40 years old. Mm. Um, We first started screening before we knew anything about breast cancer, before we even knew what an estrogen receptor was. And there's so much that's changed. We know a lot more about risk. We know a lot more about breast cancer. But we have not really updated our approach to breast cancer screening or prevention, nor have we integrated screening and prevention. So in my whole approach is we should be learning from everybody. You know, we should be integrating the ideas of care and research because who wants yesterday's news? We want to advance the state of the art. This is what women deserve. Women deserve the iPhone 12 or whatever it might. You know, it's it's <laughs> like you skipped a couple of generations. I like right. that. Well, women <laughs> deserve a phone that has yet to be invented. That's, that's, that, but that is right. You know, yeah. so like you know why and why should we settle? Yeah. And the thing about it is that so what and and people have such strongly held beliefs. And yet, if you go around the world or go around the country people have very different opinions. They're all looking at the same data. So what we need to do is generate the evidence to make better decisions. So we started this program called Women Informed to Screen Depending on Measures of Risk, the wisdom study. 
I see what you That's did. That's quite an acronym. I see yeah. what wisdom. you did. Wisdom. <laughs> we want women to share their wisdom, right? Yep. And yeah. so the thing is, everybody gets a new idea and they just want to do it. But that does not actually move the needle. That's not going to stop the arguments. And people don't like getting caught in between. So we say it's a new day. Generate some new data. We invite women. So we're testing annual screening starting at 40, which for many is the mantra. Right. That was Rita's program. Okay. Right? That's – but – we're testing that against a more personalized approach. So taking everything we know about, about breast cancer risk to get a comprehensive risk assessment to tell people when to start, when to stop, how often to screen, and with what modality. Now, it turns out that you can ask lots of questions, but if you come from a small family, you're adopted, or maybe the disease might skip a generation, you wouldn't know. Not many people have one of these nine genes that are mutated but we actually have the technology to look now, and the cost of that has come way down. And the cost of being able to look at these SNPs has come way down. Yeah. So why not start with the best that we have? Why not test comprehensive genetic assessment and looking at density and looking at all, but to set it up in a way that we can continue to learn? That's really the right thing yeah. to do. Yeah. Are insurance and, companies willing to do that, though? That's I think that's always it always comes down to Money. It costs money to get a BRCA test, which is the okay. BRCA test. So let me right? tell you exactly. So How can women be empowered to ask right. for those? Well, so in this study, so we were very lucky. We got funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. This was started by the Affordable Care Act to really to test, you know, to help us learn better about common things. And screening is one of those common things. But they said, we're not going to pay for the test. Now, the genetic test is now come down to the price of a mammogram, mm. right? So that where we can look at those nine mutations plus the SNPs. But it's a different way of using it. And we're saying, let's start with it in the population. And we'll tell the people, the few people who have that risk, we'll tell them. And we actually have built in prevention assessments to the top two and a half to 5% of people at risk. Right. Now, people don't want to pay for that outside of a... Uh, of a study, but we said, you know, look, screening, we're spending eight to $10 billion a year on screening. It is a lot of money. So why shouldn't we try and find a better mousetrap, figure out how to yeah. do it differently? And what mm -hmm. we can do is say, by starting with this screening test, we can actually change the use of the downstream screening. And it actually, at the end of the day, personalized screening can be less expensive. Now, did everyone go along with that? They did not. But fortunately, Blue Shield of California did, and now Blue Cross Blue Shield National, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. I wish everyone did, yeah. but, you know, I celebrate, you know, the progressive people yeah, who are stepping great. up and saying that they're going to cover right. the cost of the test and let us generate this data. I think every Amazing. insurance company should be yeah. pressured into it yeah. because why, are, why, why, why shouldn't it be everyone's responsibility to generate the data that we need? Self-insured companies, uh, we have several um, – Qualcomm, Salesforce, Genentech, um, the University of California, um, so actually Inland yeah. Empire. We're, 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 we're getting there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we did with this study is we say, look, you're going to spend like 35 years being screened. Why not join the study and over the next five to seven years participate with us yeah. and we'll help tell you how to screen better. Help your daughter, your mother, your sister, your friends. So I, I want you to share one specific piece of wisdom because we've been moving so fast. Yes. And we've used this word, which isn't even a word, BRCA, <laughs> B-R-C-A. Can you define that briefly for the listener who didn't cram like I did before okay. putting this in their ears? So once upon a time, what we knew was there were these families 
where there was lots of breast cancer or breast and ovarian cancer in the families and lots where people were dying of their disease. And especially we were seeing families three generations or in young. So this is people who are at risk at much earlier, where the curve has shifted like 20 years earlier. And one of the researchers who was a pioneer in this area was Mary Claire King, and she identified the area of the gene in this one gene. A lot of people think that BRCA stands for breast cancer. It sounds logical. But in fact, it's reasonable. it stands for Berkeley, California, because she was a researcher at Berkeley at the I time. I had no idea. <laughs> that is that is Mary Claire King lore. I'm here to learn. Right. And it's actually another really interesting thing is the actual person who cloned the gene because was was uh, the company Mary Genetics because they were in Utah and there was this you know, large families, and they had this yes. one large family where they were able to actually get and sequence all those genes. Now, what happened was they actually patented the gene, and so they actually had a monopoly on testing for quite some time. But that, of course, changed with the Supreme Court ruling saying you couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that ruling because I think it has really opened up um, the ability to get much lower cost testing, you know, out into the market. Yeah. And I think that what we want to do is take all of our information and use it as best we can and have a platform for learning and continuing to learn. What if it turns out that there's groups of people who are not only at low risk, but also at very low risk for what we consider ultra low risk cancers? Maybe that's a group of people who in the future don't need to be screened, where you have all the harm and no good. And maybe in terms of right, so, with screening. so we have to have a platform for learning who is at risk for what kind of cancer. And we also have to stop thinking about screening as if it's just screening. When we get the chance to know that someone's at very high risk, then you can think about prevention. And while right now, for someone who's maybe BRCA1, the best prevention may be prophylactic surgery, you know, for others like CHECK2 or BRCA2, and maybe if you come from families where people don't die of their disease, maybe some of the endocrine therapies that are that, that actually really are effective can work. So I, I think that's one of the things that people need to know, that there are lots of options and lots of things that we can do to start to reduce risk and change our behaviors as well to bring down our breast cancer risk. But you have to be able to help people understand. The first thing we have to ask is, is personalized screening just as safe? If it is then we can move that forward. Is it less morbid? Do fewer people get biopsies and get the same good outcomes? Is it preferred by women? Does it actually help us promote prevention where we can actually start to decrease the rates of breast cancer? And is there better healthcare value? And that's something we all have to think about. We all share that burden. We want to have better outcomes with fewer resources and fewer side effects, right? And fewer interventions. I just wanted to build on something that Dr. Esmond was saying. And, and I think, Rita, you asked such a great question about payers, right? And, and if there is coverage. And one of the things that we know is that health innovation is really democratizing access to health yes. information. Mm, that's which is great. Amazing. Did you come up with that yourself? <laughs> I can't take all the credit for it, but it's clever. true, yeah. right? It is, it's I, you know, we have an amazing true. team at Bright Pink who thinks about this work all the time. We have to also democratize access to the interventions that are going Absolutely. to lead to better health outcomes. Yeah. Well, and so I think that's something that we have to you know, continue to really push for and to advocate for um, if we're going to move the needle in this way for all women, right? That's the stuff I'm curious about, though. Like, what yeah. is it today 
that women can be doing that is part of prevention um, that they can uh, take control over and actually do something about? Because I think women feel like you do the things like you said I'm going to get a a mammogram if I have a family history I might get genetic testing to see if I have the gene um the Berkeley, California gene. There's a number of them now, nine. But. Right. Well, and, or, and that's the other thing, too. I mean, if it is less expensive, um, should everyone be getting it? I mean, we well, don't know. So that's for testing. So that's actually an important question. Should everyone be tested? Should this be the standard? Well, that's part of the personalized approach. We think that, in fact, it is, it's, great to be able to ask the questions about whether you should be tested. But actually, if the tests are really accurate, it's probably better even to do it. But to do that within an infrastructure so that the second you find something and the few people that might have it, you're ready to counsel them and set that up. So part of what we're trying to do is couple this with breast health specialists and people who can counsel and and tell people because you can't do it it's like Without when you that. go when you go to have an amnio and you have to do the genetic testing right. and counseling and you have to make those decisions but you have a support team while while you're doing the questioning before you agree to go in and get your amnio yeah. so that you're prepared for anything that might be found. Yeah. Well, but and so it, some so part of the problem is that you, you know it's pretty rare and people don't necessarily pay any attention but really is it really our obligation to really surface and help inform people with the idea. So that's, we're letting people know it's possible we'll find this, but don't worry. The second, if we find it, we're there to support you and help you. And I'll tell you something else that's really interesting. You know, yes, the things that everyone can do, good for their health. Don't smoke, you know, don't drink too much, exercise, eat more plant-based foods. All those things are great. But Here's the other thing. There are some people who are at higher risk. And, you know, we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars and years on prevention research. And the uptake of those preventive interventions are very, very poor. In terms of people actually taking the steps. That's right. Okay. And I think part of it is because we don't do a good job of identifying the people at the highest risk who actually really would benefit from it or the groups of people for whom maybe we should be thinking about what are the things that we can do to reduce breast density. You take the people with the highest risk. There are some new things that are coming along that we can really study more effectively by really figuring out how to focus our preventive efforts on the people that are most likely to use it. So that's part of what we're trying to test in this personalized approach. So, so one of the themes that has come up in this podcast a lot is obviously the genetic testing component. It's, it's kind of the anchor of many of the stories that we've been finding. And for, for you, Katie, and with Bright Pink, how has that access to genetic testing, and particularly your work with 23andMe, changed people's uh, pathway to prevention? And I also know on this cultural point, it's kind of a follow-up question to what um, Laura was just saying, that getting people to take the preventive steps, you all have a user-friendly, sort of in-your-pocket approach with this text messaging service. So could you address both of those on, on the genetic testing front and on the the messaging side. Definitely. So Bright Pink has two key goals. The first is to identify women who are at elevated risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And then, like I said, to drive those women who are at elevated risk to take risk-reducing action in partnership with a healthcare provider. And that's a really challenging thing to do, right? It it requires a tremendous amount of follow-up. So we have this amazing risk assessment tool, assessyourrisk.org. But then the other part is 
staying with those women who are at elevated risk to really drive them to take preventive action. And right now that preventive action, you know, mostly looks like genetic counseling, genetic testing, risk-reducing procedures, risk-reducing medication. Um, I'm glad the genetic counseling came up, actually, because I heard Rita talk a little bit about it and Dr. Esserman as well. And genetic counseling is a rapidly evolving field as well. And there's so much demand. As we see increase in um, consumer or patient knowledge yeah. about their genetics, we have a greater need, I believe, for healthcare providers to be able to counsel and interpret that information. So genetic counselors exist. There probably aren't enough of them to meet the current demand as well as the increasing demand. So another part of Bright Pink's work, we're you know really a two-pronged organization educating women is part of our work, and educating healthcare providers as a pathway to empowering women is another part of our work. Yeah, because so, people are going to walk into those offices with their printouts right, right, exactly. and say, I, I know all these things about myself. What exactly. do I do with this new knowledge? So let's say I came to you yep. uh, two years ago and I said, oh, my, I got tested and I have this thing called LCIS. Mm-hmm. What would Bright Pink have recommended to do uh, and let's say then two years later, now it's PLCIS. Right. What I'm just curious at, to personalize it in a way. Mm-hmm. What would have been what would have been the steps? Yeah, I think the first thing is to realize that you would have been identified as at increased risk because of that. And so the next step for you is meet with a healthcare provider. These are really complicated decisions and they're multifaceted. And mm-hmm. so to get towards a personalized approach, you do have to be working with a trusted healthcare provider, right? There's so much information and there's so much that you can do, but that can be a really intimidating experience for people, right? Especially if you don't know the language, if you haven't, exactly. you know, gained exposure to some of this information in the past. So we've talked a lot about the genes and the medicines and the treatments and, and the science, but most of our experience of health is not in a doctor's office. That's right. Yeah. It's not in a laboratory setting. It's with our friends, it's with our families, it's with our coworkers. And as someone who's been through this, Rita, I'm curious, what was that part of this for you? What your support network? Like how did you Manage through this process. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Please tell um, us more about that. First of all, you realize that you have friends in your life that have had breast cancer, and so you go to them. I have a, a one girlfriend who was BRCA positive and did prophylactic bilateral mastectomy and then later removed uh, her ovaries and her fallopian tubes because she had a young child and she her mother died of ovarian cancer and she didn't want to leave her son without a mother. So she was preventative. She was incredibly helpful because a lot of people were also going to her and asking her about um, her experience. So she had a lot of information, not only with the BRCA gene, but just breast cancer in general. And then I had my friend Mary, who is a two-time breast cancer survivor, and she had uh, also the BRCA gene, and uh, her uh, she was also very uh, um, helpful because she was very encouraging. Um, she was the one who told me to get the second opinion on my pathology, pathology yeah. which was huge. But what you do is you widen your network of friends and... It, and I, I'm always amazed by the community of women who are compelled to pay it forward and say, this is what my experience was. This is how I dealt with it. This is what to expect. 
um, make sure you do X, Y, and Z so that you're getting a lot of information. Um, one of the things I would say, and it sounds like, and I'm going to say this so many times, this um, uh, podcast, if possible, assessyourrisk.org <laughs> sounds like an amazing um, place to go to get information because so many times I think women don't ask all the questions that they should be asking. And um, in my case, I did ask questions and sometimes I got an I don't know from my doctor, the original doctor. And your the other thing I would say is that in your community, that community, whether it's the medical community or your friends, in the medical community, I would say, make sure that you have a great team. Because That's in right. this case, the team of pathology failed mm -hmm. miserably. And that's really important. How many women would know to go get a second opinion on your pathology? I've, I had never heard that before. And so that was bad. That was a, a team member that failed. And I think when you're going into something like this, you have to be able to confront something. You have to be able to ask questions. You have to be able to demand something if you want it. And you have to insist on it. I remember when I was getting my mammograms and insurance companies didn't want to do an ultrasound after having a mammogram. They'd say, why would I do that? Your, your mammogram is clean. But sometimes a mammogram is not going to be showing the lump that an ultrasound can get. Because I was high risk, or let's say higher risk with LCIS, they were giving me an ultrasound. But a lot of women wouldn't know even to ask for that. And a year can go by, and now you've had a tumor growing for a year, and they're catching it at the next mammogram. And if you I have friends who got breast cancer because they were, oh, my gosh, I thought my mammogram was yet last year, but it actually two years or three years had gone by since I had my mammogram. I kept a schedule, a religious schedule on my phone. This is when I'm doing my mammogram. This is when I'm doing my MRI. It was always the same time every year. And I think that's an important thing for women to do, too, is make sure that you're going and you're checking those that schedule and you're staying on it. Absolutely. I also love that you talked about the importance of peer support, though, or your support network with your friends and family, because that is incredibly important. BrightPeg has this amazing online support community for women who are at high risk. But it's so important, right? Because these conversations are challenging. There's a lot of information. And being able to really lean on someone who's gone through a similar experience or who can share with you questions to ask your doctor, you know, ways that you can be engaging is um, and different treatment options to explore is really, really important. So I just, if you don't already have an amazing support network, you know, definitely seek one out. There are mm -hmm. many organizations so many. that provide. So I, I want to say the most important thing for women to know is that breast cancer, if you're diagnosed with it, is not an emergency. It is an emergency because you know about it. It's not leukemia. It's not something where you have to do something the next day, and if you don't, something bad will happen. It doesn't work that way. So you have plenty of time to well, ask questions. Define what plenty of time is you know, a month, a month or two, even with the highest risk cancers. If someone comes in who's young and has to have chemotherapy and they want to harvest eggs because they don't want to close the door and having children, there's plenty of time to do that. Because in the highest risk cancers, it's all about your response to treatment. And if you have a good response to treatment, it doesn't matter how bad your cancer was to start, you're still going to be okay. 
And a lot of the cancers, as it turns out, that as I said before at the beginning, there are some, there are lots of different cancers. There are some cancers, in fact, about a, maybe as a quarter to a third of those cancers that are detected by screening that actually are not killer cancers. They're what we call ultra-low-risk cancers. So having that information and knowing that you don't have to do everything. So this is sort of the whole kind of circle. There's what risk and predisposition you have. So knowing, so BRCA or, or any one of these nine genes are very uncommon. But if they are there, they impact your chance, not just about the cancer that you have, but a future cancer. So that's why understanding your risk is important. If you have a really terrible cancer, the most important thing you can do is try and treat the cancer you have. And that's, again, I'm a big proponent if you have a bad cancer, treat up front with your medicines and try and be, don't start with surgery. I'm a surgeon. I can tell you that's not the right thing to do. You want to find out whether your medicines are working and try and find out if there are clinical trials to participate in because that's tomorrow's therapies today. And make sure that you know your sources mm-hmm. and know your resources. And most, most places, you know, you can go to a center that does a lot of that to make sure that you get the kind of resource you need. And if Someone's not giving you the information you want. They're not the right doctor for you. That I agree with that 1,000% because it's a lot of questions, and somebody should be able to answer them. And That's if right. they aren't answering them, they're not the and right if, doctor for you. And if they're you. insulted because you want to get a second opinion, they're not the right doctor Correct. for you. And what the treatments are for the patients, not for us. Right. And, you know, Right. Well, right. When the surgeon says don't get surgery, right. you that's, know that's a good doctor. Right. And I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here because Bright Pink's you know work Wait, is, is to interview assessorrisk.org. <laughs> All right, Rita. Okay, Rita's running for vice president of Bright Pink over here. I want to get it back to Katie, who's been trying to continue well, to make a point. It's more of a question. My, yeah. you know, our work at Bright Pink is to intervene far upstream before a diagnosis. But I really hear you on like. What is that question that patients can ask if they've been diagnosed? And I've heard from, you know, other folks, I'm curious to hear your perspective. Um, Doctor, you know, is it enough to go in and say, sequence me? Will that be a conversation starter with your healthcare provider when you have a tumor? Or how do you feel about that? Because I know there's some you know, dialogue in the community about it. And when you say sequence me, you mean a full sequencing, sequencing your of tumor, your tumor. Sequencing. Right. And just say, well, what are my options? for having my tumor looked at with sequencing or uh, one of these multi-gene, multi-gene yeah. profiles, one, one of that. So it's actually interesting how much progress is being made in, in lung cancer now. It's, you know, there's different types there. But in breast cancer, to say, I want to know what kind of cancer I have. I want to know how much risk I have and what kind of things are going to actually make a difference in my cancer. Just, you might have risk, but it might be, risk at 10 years or 15 years. Those aren't the cancers for whom chemotherapy is going to make a difference, mm-hmm. right? And so, again, the more questions women ask and the more we drive for change, the more likely it is to have change. I have to tell you why, you know, when I started practice, the standard was doing radical mastectomies. And the biopsy was done in the operating room and people would yes. wake up with these Without radical breasts. procedures. right? And there was no conversations about no. it. So that was, you know, when we first started creating these multidisciplinary centers, it was to have a place where women could go and ask questions, participate in trials. But people changed because the women demanded it. They wanted something better. 
And so what I say is that's how we get change. Women demanding something better. We can do much better than we're doing now. And, and that's to your point, Rita, giving women that iPhone 12. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> demanding that future. I want to say what I heard, and I'm, I'm not saying that this is a fact. I'm curious if you know anything about it. But I heard not that long ago, maybe a month ago, that there is a possible connection from a, the father's side of the family and prostate cancer to breast cancer in a daughter. Is that true? Did yeah. I hear so, that correctly? So here's, here's, this is, we used to think. Welcome to our newest segment, Ask Dr. Esserman. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, I'm just We curious. used to think that, you know, you inherited breast cancer risk through your mother. And that turns out not to be true, right? You get half your genes from your father and half your genes from your mother. And, you know, men who have an inherited predisposition to breast cancer, you know, can have an increased risk of breast cancer. But even so, instead of having it be 85%, it might be 8% because it's a hundred, you know, it's tenfold less in mm-hmm. men. So you may never see that. But what you also see is maybe an early onset of prostate cancer. There are, or pancreatic cancer, BRCA2 is associated with pancreatic cancer. Again, there are thousands of mutations in the BRCA genes. And we're starting to understand what kinds of mutations are more associated with ovarian cancers. So if you have a, a, you know, a check two mutation and you're 56 and you have no family history whatsoever and you come from a big family, your risk is not 35 or 40 percent. It's probably about 20 percent. And maybe you would want to take something like one of the hormonal medicines, but maybe not. That's one of the opportunities that there is a nuance to all of this, and it's not one size fits all. It's more complicated than that. And I think we have to be clear that the old mantra, screening, early detection saves lives, it's more complicated than that. Because if but you, we can still agree that early detection is very valuable. I want to make clear, too, that one of the problems with early detection is we've been finding a lot of early cancers or things that are DCIS or things that will never, ever likely go on to be cancer. And if we then start doing things like bilateral mastectomy or lumpectomy and radiation on people who were never at risk to begin with, that's potentially harmful. And the face of over-treatment has a story, and people are harmed by it. So, you know, when we first started screening, all we knew is cancer, yes or no. And the people who had late-stage cancer did worse than the people who had early-stage cancer. And the thought was if we could just find it all early, we'd solve all the problems. But the data have shown us that it's not true. There are some people with very fast cancers. There are people who have slow-growing cancers. And the people who have, like, such slow-growing cancers, they probably don't you know, have much. And part of the problem is we've had many more of these slow-growing cancers detected and are probably over-treating a lot of them. The good news is we're starting to understand that. So this profiling, the genomic profiling of your tumor gives you real information. What kind of tumor do I have? What do I need? And that, I think, really helps you and helps us mitigate the potential harm. And it's probably true that there is a group of people who probably have a tremendous amount to gain from screening. So let's try and figure out who those people are and focus on that in the future. But let's start by building the platforms and the tools to help us continuously learn. Keep updating the risk models. If something new comes up, let's put it in. Let's not test something that's going to be obsolete in five years. I want to ask you all, as we head on the way out of this discussion, which will hopefully spur many others, 
what is your call to action based on your expertise, your platform? I have some hints about some .org websites that might come up in this. <laughs> but Rita, you're also working on things right now. Could we start with you? What do you want people to know? And where can people find what you're doing right now? I think I'd want people to know two things. I would say trust your gut on certain things. Get a second opinion on your pathology just to make sure for your own peace of mind. Get a second opinion if you're not quite sure about what you're hearing from your doctor. Talk to your community of uh, women who maybe have gone through this and could uh, be informative. Um, and when I say that, I mean people that are going to be informative with information and not bad information, because <laughs> sometimes that can be depressing. Um, and uh, we uh, have been involved with an, a, an organization called Women's Cancer Research Fund that is now partnered with Breast Cancer Research Fund. And I would look into those things that are about what what your risks really are. I would look at your diet. I would look at your alcohol consumption because even post-breast cancer, um, alcohol consumption, consumption is very critical. But before, it is a contributing risk factor. So I would look at that. And uh, sadly, unfortunately, you might have to cut down on your booze. <laughs> <laughs> and, and are there any creative projects that you yeah, want people just, to know about as well? Yes, yeah. I just, um, I have an album, a new album out right now called Bigger Picture. Um, well, that's appropriate given our discussion. Yes, <laughs> yes, and it was sort of a lot of the songs that I uh, wrote on that were relative to when you're going through something really um, critical in your life. Um, I'm very thankful to have songwriting as an outlet, but it's also, I, I really feel that music is so healing. I went to music so many times when I was going through treatment and recovery and diagnosis and all of those things because it was absolutely like an escape for me. So um, that album is called Bigger Picture. And uh, for those of you who like music, I'll be at Stagecoach on April 27th, which is going to be super fun. I just made my debut with the Grand Ole Opry, so hello. Ooh. That was pretty great. <laughs> All right. Katie, same, same questions. What do you want people to walk away with and know? Where should they go? Yeah. So we've already talked about <laughs> assessyourrisk.org, yeah. but definitely complete the risk assessment and then share it with a woman that you love or many women that you love. I think that's really, really important. Um, for healthcare providers who are out there who might be turn tuning in, Bright Pink has developed this incredible e-learning platform where you can get CME or CE accreditation. Um, we're training healthcare providers in a digital way to do risk stratification and risk management. Um, we talked a lot about the importance of that patient-provider relationship. And, um, you know, I certainly believe that healthcare provider education, especially related to this topic, is going to be really, really important for us to execute on personalized prevention. Um, and then, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say visit brightpink.org slash give and, you know, really help to fuel this critical work and this mission. Thank you. And Dr. Esserman. Bring us home. Okay. So that I would say, if you have been diagnosed with breast cancer, take a deep breath and know that you have time to figure out what your options are. And, you know, again, use your resources. Understand what's important to you. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And um, and if you're not getting the right questions answered from your from your doctor, 
look for a different one. Um, and again, understand that breast cancer is more than one type of disease and make sure you ask about clinical trials uh, and opportunities. If you haven't had breast cancer, I would encourage everyone to be one of the 100,000 women sharing their wisdom and participating in trying to make the future better to help us generate the data that we as women need to make the right choices. Um, And I would say pressure your insurers to participate in generating this evidence. I think it's everyone's responsibility to get the data and to do better. And uh, I think that's one of the things that that impedes our progress. But I I think that instead of just doing things, it's really important, and especially in a screening study, there's plenty of time to find out. Let's find out, you know, who's got what kind of cancer and what is the best way for us to screen and prevent breast cancer. And, you know, again, wisdomstudy.org, go to that site. Please join us in making the world better. You're all awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I feel wiser. I feel better able to assess my risk and help those in my community do that. We have a much bigger picture before us. So I want to thank the three of you for being a part of this discussion uh, on behalf of SPIT and all of our partners. Thank you, Baratunde. Thank Thank you. you. So after that important and lively discussion with Rita, Dr. Esserman, and Katie, I had the opportunity to catch up with Sarah Altschul, a blogger and breast cancer previvor who chronicled her own health journey in her Braving BRCA column in Bustle. We are so grateful to Sarah Altschul for being here today. Sarah is an influencer, a blogger, a breast cancer advocate, and a previvor. To call her tough would be an understatement. Eight weeks out of surgery, displaced by the Woolsey fires, and yet she still traveled over an hour in L.A. rush hour traffic to join us in person in Santa Monica today. Sarah, I'm so very happy to have you with me. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I want to start with this term, previvor. What is that? I had no idea what that was before probably eight months ago, but now I am a previvor. It basically means that you survived uh, a genetic risk of developing cancer. At what age did you discover this? Basically, my way of saying, how old are you? (laughs) Um, I'm 31 years old. And was breast cancer on your mind? Was genetic risk for breast cancer on your mind? How did you discover that you were at risk and we can talk about what you did about it? No, not at all. And I think, you know, I think when most people look at, think about breast cancer and their risk for breast cancer, you think about the women in your family. And I come from a huge line of women on my mom's side. No one has ever been affected by breast cancer. So naively, I thought, that's not my story. That's not me. Um, And then about a year ago, um, I did the 23andMe test, and um, I wanted to see how Jewish I was. So you did for ancestral kind of reasons. Yeah. Um, And I'm 75% Jewish, which I already knew. So you're very Jewish. Very Jewish. (laughs) Um, And then I added on the health benefits myself, just because I like to think of myself as like a mild hypochondriac. And so I was like... (laughs) You want to know, but you have control. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You can stop whatever you want. Yeah. And so then I got back my health benefits and everything was good. So I was like, I'm in the clear. Like, life can go on. I'm super excited. Um, I, you know, like to live a healthy life. I really eat healthy. I run, I exercise. And so it's important for me to just make sure, like, I'm doing all I can. Yeah. 
In March of this year, I get an email from 23andMe saying that they've been now FDA approved to tell you if you carry one of the three BRCA mutations that they're now testing for. And I had heard about the BRCA gene mostly from Angelina Jolie. Um, but then also I remembered Not that... Not personally. Like, no, I wish. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on my dad's side, I remember hearing that he had a cousin. Okay. Um, Susan, who had the BRCA2 mutation, and she had breast cancer and died of ovarian cancer. And uh, I remember that, but it was kind of like a distant memory in my mind. So when I got the email, I had this strange gut feeling that I had the mutation, but I didn't have my results yet. But I had this feeling, and I remember calling my mom, and because I'm a mild hypochondriac, no one took me seriously. Of course, why would they? I didn't have my results. But um, three weeks later, I got my results, and I was positive with a BRCA2 mutation. How did getting those results feel? Oh, um, it was really scary. It was like a lot of information. So basically, um, and 23andMe does an amazing job of saying like, you know, follow up with the genetic counselor. So that's exactly what I did. I flew home, uh, made an appointment to follow up with a counselor, but it's also just a lot to process. You know, my risk of developing breast cancer, um, I believe there's a lot of different statistics out there, but um, I believe it's 84% in my lifetime. And my risk of ovarian cancer is up to 27%. And then they like to add on melanoma and then just pancreatic (laughs) cancer. Yeah, Yeah. let's just keep adding them on. (laughs) So it's a lot to just take in, you know, and to just grasp all of a sudden, like one day you're healthy and you're still healthy, but you're not. So it's like a really weird concept and kind of hard to grasp. What happened next? And how did you, you know, yeah. Did you double check? Did you confirm? Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. So I brought my 23andMe results into the genetic counselor. I got an appointment. Actually, I think I got my results on a Monday, saw the genetic counselor on a Friday. Um, she had told me that, you know, I would do a blood test, but that prepare myself that this was going to probably be positive. Um, and so she just talked to me about what my risks were right now at 31 versus what my risks would be at 40 um, and helped put a little bit perspective into things that I think my risk right now was 10%. So she was like, look at it, 90% chance that you're not going to have breast cancer. And so that was really helpful having that experience and to have someone walk through all of my family history with me and really just put everything into perspective. And so that was just like, super, super helpful. And then she was there for me when I got my blood test results confirming that it's yeah. something that I already knew. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, the action you decided to take with this new information? So immediately when I knew my risks, I knew 100% that I was going to have a preventative double mastectomy. Like there was, how did how did you jump to that? Yeah. You said you knew 100%. Yeah. So you went from zero yeah. to 100 on this one. I'm a Tell- quick mover. Yeah. You really have two options. You have surveillance where you can every six months, I would go have a mammogram, a breast MRI. Um, I would have a pelvic ultrasound and blood work. Or the other option is to, you know, decrease your risk of developing breast cancer by having a prophylactic double mastectomy. And so I knew that that was an option. Um, so, of course, I researched it. Like, yeah. you know, I was like, well, I'm going to do it without researching. No, so mild like, hypochondriacs do a lot <laughs> yeah. of research. Yeah. I did a lot, yeah. a lot of research. I knew that at the end of the day, I wanted to be the person that did whatever I could to have a healthy life. Yeah. And I, you know, was obviously so scared. You don't just go into it like, oh, yeah, I got this. Um, but for me, I just felt like, what? okay, what am I afraid of? 
I'm afraid of the pain. Like that was it. I'm I'm just afraid of the unknown. I can't sit with that. Like I can't just sit knowing that that's the one thing stopping me from living a healthy life. What was the hardest part or what has been? I mean, in some ways you're you're recently recovered from the procedure. What's been the hardest part? Hmm. The hardest part, there's different hard parts of every step. So I'd say the hardest part in the beginning was allowing myself to just feel the emotions. I think, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, but you're healthy or like this is a good thing. And it is in the end. But it was really important for me to just express to someone like I am so scared. Like this is terrifying. And I just want someone to listen to that. And so that was like a hard part. And then before my surgery, it was hard for me to understand the concept of that I could be strong and scared at the same time. And that was like a big realization. Like I can be both. I'm so scared to have the surgery. I was terrified. But that didn't mean I wasn't strong. Yeah. And then recovery, you have to push past that recovery isn't a linear experience it's an up and down process and that was like the hard part of that you know but I think now every hard part I've gone through has just made me a stronger person what did you learn about yourself I learned that I'm super brave and I never felt that about myself before and even when I first before I had the surgery people would say like you're so brave you're so brave and I was like I don't feel that way but I can actually look at myself now and be like you're really brave yeah you are yeah like (laughs) yeah Sarah you're a badass (laughs) I feel like now I'm like if I can have a double mastectomy like anything I'm like oh I can do that like that's fine so does that mean like you always like clean your room on time (laughs) (laughs) I can feel I feel like your parents could use that (laughs) (laughs) oh no oh yeah no I'm still the same old Sarah but I feel like you know, when I get nervous about things or like there's the fear of the unknown, it's just a good reminder to myself of like, look what you've been through. Yeah. Look what you can accomplish and look what you can push past. You're converting something that feels and was mm-hmm. traumatic. Yeah. And frightening. Yeah. And intimidating into something that feels positive. Mm-hmm. Like you're coming across as positive, but I don't feel like you're faking it because no. you're also acknowledging the hard parts <laughs> yeah. of it. Can you describe a little bit more? that positivity that Mm -hmm. you're finding and and what you're trying to do with that. Yeah. To me, I've always been a positive person. And before my surgery, I asked my surgeon, like, what can I do? There's a lot of complications with the surgery. I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can. And she said, it's in your mind. Like, you have to remain positive throughout this experience. And that will help you through this journey. And I was like, okay, if that's what she said. And, you know, there are hard times, but if you can look past that and at the end of the day and look at how far you've come to me it's like that's priceless and I want to share that with other people out there that they are not alone there's this amazing community of other women that I've been able to turn to and I want to be that for someone else Um, you know like random people from all over will message me like you know what size implants should I get or like tell me about your experience or like how painful was it and I want to just share all the knowledge I have and be there for them Um, and so I try to just take what has happened to me and make meaning from it and help other women. You've been through something that a lot of people have heard about that some people fear what would you want most women to know that you didn't know before you went through it yourself? You know, I was so scared of the surgery 
And, you know, it is scary, but if I can do it and I like, I tell everyone this, I am afraid of everything. I'm afraid of needles. I'm afraid of like literally everything. And so I just feel like if there's one woman out there that's wanting to do the surgery but is scared, that it's going to be okay in the end. And you can push past that fear. Yeah. And, you know, you can get through this. Are you still checking your 23andMe profile? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm waiting for more updates. I want all the updates on everything. <laughs> uh, it's still 75% Jewish, but see yes, what else gets, yeah. gets added on top of that. Uh, is there anything that a listener right now could do to help? Yeah. They can get a 23andMe test. <laughs> I mean, like that's, you know, I would have never sought this test out if I didn't do the, t- like, I would have never known this information. Right. I think that's like, that part is mind blowing to me. No doctor ever told me that if you're Jewish, Ashkenazi Jewish, your chance of having this gene is one in 40. And the first time I found that out was when I got my results from 23 Me. And so I think like for me, I don't even know if I like grasped it that much or even knew to like go get a test on my own. And here is this test that I did for fun and I can see if I also have these mutations. And so I think if someone's curious and, you know, they have the opportunity to do it and it's so easily accessible, then knowledge is power. Boom. Sarah, can you share with me and share with anyone listening, where can we find out even more about your story? Yeah. And um, you. So it was obviously really important for me to share my story. And there's so much that goes into it, like prior to surgery and what that looks like and how you can get yourself mentally and physically ready for surgery. And, you know, I chronicled what it was like to even just find out I carried this mutation up until after my surgery. And I wrote for Bustle, um, an online publication um, called Braving Braca. I wrote a column for that. Um, And then I also just documented on my Instagram. Um, So you can find me at Miss Sarah, M-I-S-S dot S-A-R-A. No H. Doesn't (laughs) doesn't need the H. Don't need the H. It's redundant. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's just um, a huge community of women out there that have helped me and I want to do the same. And I just, I have uh, checked out some of your blog mm-hmm. and I've also benefited from other people doing this chronicling. I've yeah. had a number of surgeries in my life and we have this new ability to, to see it as someone else has. Yeah. And so I, I just, I'm not going through what you've gone through, but I've gone through some other similar things They're and so it's just similar, so powerful yeah. to, to see someone else's perspective directly. Yeah. And, and I think there's something report. really powerful in the fact that at first I was just going to write one article, but I was like, there's so much yeah. to unpack, you know, when you first find out until you're prepping for your surgery and, you know, the moments of like where you're just waiting. No one talks about that. You have like, you know, in three months, I'm about to have a double mastectomy. Like no one's talking about what that three months is like. Right. What um, was that three months like? It was so scary. <laughs> you know, there's moments where I was like, when am I going to feel zen? Am I ever going to feel zen? <laughs> I'm going to, you know, and then it, I kind of did. And yeah. I was like, this is weird. I feel quite zen. But like, you know, so it was kind of cool to be able to talk about all the experiences as I was going along with it. And you also have to hold yourself accountable to really like sit down and be like, how am I feeling this week? Because I have to write about it. And so it was a good way for me to really acknowledge my feelings. It's therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah totally. You have to force yourself to look inside as mm-hmm. well. Totally. Is there anything you want to add? You know, going through this has 
been life-changing and I just think that anyone can connect with that as well it's like we go through these experiences but I think the most important thing is sharing them with others and connecting your experience with someone else's and I just always want to add if there's someone out there that you know needs help or needs someone to talk to like find me always message me like I just it's so important for me to give back after I've been through this well, thanks for giving back right here, yeah, for sharing your you curiosity, so your bravery, your fear, and your optimism. Oh, I really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Want to dig in more on today's topics and guests? Check our show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend, all your friends, and be sure to leave a review. If you want to hear more surprising stories about how we're all related, Search and follow Spit on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Spit is an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. I'm Baratunde Thurston. You can find out more about me at baratunde.com or sign up for my text messages. Just hit me up at 202-902-7949. Put hashtag SpitPodcast in your message so I know where you came from. 